Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. It's the podcast where we've got mail. We have got mail. Don't we just? <laughs> anyway, this is the podcast where you control the conversation here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I... I'm called Rockmeister McCool when people write in. Thank you for writing in. Uh, thank you for writing in. Uh, yeah, uh, we, we as, get your emails. As, as I've said before, I, I'll live a century and not live up to the coolness of that name. Uh, but thank you. Uh, you, you, you. You cut yourself to the quick, sir. But uh, yeah, this is uh, your your show. This is your letters podcast. We listen, we listen to you. We uh, let you dictate uh, what we get to talk about. You, We let you... Uh, Correct us if we've made mistakes in the mm-hmm. past, which we have. Uh, ask uh, us can, for recommendations. Yeah. Give us like fun things to do over the email mm-hmm. deals. Uh, the email is letters at critically acclaimed dot net. And without further ado, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> Whitney, what's our first letter? Here's a letter from Ryan. Okay, so we're starting with a letter from Ryan. Uh, this is uh, the title is "The Argument of the Andersons." Hmm. Uh, Dear Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool, Rockmeister is spelled R-A-C-H Meister, as in like Like Rockmaninoff. Yeah, I like it. Uh, Greetings. Here in Wisconsin, I'm writing to blow off steam after our oligarchy of sociopathic mutants known as the Republican majority of the Wisconsin Supreme Court insisted on holding in-person elections today. Oh, yeah. That was yeah, today. That was today, endangering yeah, countless lives this a little bit early. in the midst of a global pandemic in order yeah. to ensure themselves an additional seat on the court by suppressing poor minority voters. Yay! Now on to my question. <laughs> If anyone isn't paying attention in Wisconsin, wow. they tried to, uh, because of the whole pandemic, mm. uh, allow De- people to... Delay the primary. De- delay it. Mm. Do it over uh, uh, the mail, if necessary. Uh, and the Republicans were just like, nope, everyone has to do it in person. We don't care if everyone dies. Mm. Yeah. Such warm and giving caregivers. Yeah. Uh, now my discussion question. As I see it, there are generally two paths of great artists... Uh, to go down. Mm. Along the first path, an artist pursues a signature master aesthetic by returning to the same styles and themes, ideally ones that are drawn from artists' unique tastes and preoccupations, their soul, if you will. Mm. Uh, an example of this is Wes Anderson. Down okay. the other path, the individual artwork is valued above oeuvre. Uh, each work stands alone, with artistic choices like style and theme dictated by the needs of the piece, rather than the signature of the author. An example of this is Paul Thomas Anderson. Two Andersons, you see. Ah, um, of course, there are artists who straddle the line, like Kubrick, but do you think there's any merit in this sort of compartmentalization? If so, which of the Anderson's methods do you value more? I myself am more partial to Paul Thomas, where the individual piece supersedes the artist. That said, I am a Wes fan, too. I would love to get your thoughts. Stay well, Ryan. Okay, so you're talking about uh, the extent to which an artist puts their own unique stamp uh, on the work. Uh, some filmmakers only seem capable, or at the very least interested... In telling a story their own very particular way, i.e. the films of Tim Burton mm. come to mind, where some are more Tim Burton than others, but typically speaking, you could notice any of them at a glance. Yeah. He's filtering it through his own particular way of looking at the world. Uh, and then there are people like John Carpenter, who may have predilections, but every single movie seems to just be kind of its own movie, and mm. theoretically just, someone else could have shot that. He's just going to shoot it the way he shoots it. It's it's more about his craft than his aesthetic, yeah, if you will. And what we're really talking about, I think, is just a way to sort of take an entire work, I'm sorry, an entire oeuvre of an mm-hmm. artist, a, a whole, everything they've ever done, mm-hmm. 
and try to find a way to quantify it in our brains. Did you ever uh, see Dead Poet Society? I saw it, yeah. So there's a bit in Dead Poet Society where Robin Williams is brought on uh, to be the new uh, poetry teacher at this... At a boys' academy. At a boys' yeah. academy. It's very stuck up and it's very rigid in its ways. And, of course, it's played by Robin Williams. He's going to be very funny and he's going to teach the kids to think in a new, different way. At the beginning of his lecture... He of his very first lecture, no one knows who this guy is yet. He has someone read the introduction to their book of famous poets. And the introduction is some of the most incredible bullshit. Because it's all about how, okay, poetry. There's two things you can find in poetry. One is artsy fartsiness, mm. you know, stuff that sounds really good. It's, it's and like, the other one is depth. It's num- numbered and structured. And, yeah. Yeah, it's, he it's, creates a graph. Yeah, yeah. He creates a graph, but on, on the, the y-axis is how pretty it is, and the x-axis is how deep it is. And the implication is that if you want to have perfect poetry, you're going to be right up the middle of that line. And he then says, okay, tear that bullshit out of the book and throw, throw it, it the, away. Uh, yeah. That's a way of thinking about art in objective terms. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it's necessary to think about art that way. Mm-hmm. I think it's okay if you just say some filmmakers just have a vision, a particular way of doing things, and some filmmakers less so mm-hmm. to the extent that their style might disappear. Yeah, um, It's very easy to fall in love with filmmakers who have a unique, distinctive way of telling stories. Many yeah. of my favorite filmmakers do. Uh, Hayao Miyazaki, mm-hmm. Alfred Hitchcock, for example. Um, there's also nothing wrong with all of the people who just make their movies and their style doesn't pop that way. Yeah. Um, so I just think it's an interesting way to sort of like quantify something that is just a little bit more intangible than that. Yeah, yeah. So that's, and that's something we struggle with as film critics. We need to quantify things that are highly subjective. Yeah. Uh, some filmmakers are consistently good, but don't have that sort of master aesthetic at all. Mm-hmm. And those are kind of the ones that critics tend to like to write about the most because they're constantly trying to find that consistent thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Stephen Frears comes to mind. Mm. There is no single thing that you can point to in any of his films that you would say is Frearsian. He doesn't have yeah. a, like a certain kind of shot he likes. He doesn't have a particular kind of, kind of material. He likes. Yeah, he just he's like I was about material. to say Don Siegel, who doesn't have a particular mm. sort of visual aesthetic that you can particularly find in all of his work. Yeah. But his films typically are about sort of macho male experience, and mm. that's something that definitely does attract him. Yeah, that, yeah. not just not uniquely. There are these told movies about other things, but in general, yeah, yeah, yeah. he makes tough guy films. Um, and I think the kind of filmmaker like Stephen Frears, or like Don Siegel, maybe to a lesser extent, yeah, to a lesser extent, uh, or uh, Aldrich, for instance, yeah. uh, these are filmmakers who have... A mastery George of George Roy Hill. George Roy Hill. Yeah, yeah. His we'll style disappears, but he's always brilliant. Yeah. Uh, let me look up Aldrich's uh, um, filmography. But yeah, he did like The Longest Yard um, or uh, what's another uh, Dirty Dozen. Yeah, I did uh, one of those, he yeah. did. Yeah, I couldn't remember if it was that or Great Escape. Sturges did great. Sturges did great yeah, escape. Yeah. yeah, and but then he'll turn around and do something like "Whatever Happened to Baby Jane?" Yeah, uh, you know he he had this weird kind of uh, vacillation between two kind of ex- extreme kinds of filmmaking, and again, there's not really something you can point to in an Aldrich film that says, 
oh, that's definitely Robert Aldrich. Unless, of course, you're really deeply experienced with him. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it's yeah. impossible. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't pop out of the screen. I think screen. if you've seen all, like, all of uh, all, um, Stephen Freer's films in a row, you might be able to start to point to the sort of things he does over and over again. Yeah. Um, yeah, when, when you're first discovering filmmakers, you know, auteurs, you're probably going to be drawn to somebody like Tim Burton. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the reasons you said, there's things that are really easy to pick out, and if you like them, you're going to see them all over and over again. Right. Uh, same with Kubrick. Even though he worked in a variety of genres, he shot a very specific way in almost all of his movies. I guess from you know, there's pre and post Spartacus, but yeah, there's definitely a, a definite style and interest of subject matter that Kubrick would always go back to time and again. Right. I think the more interesting filmmakers are the ones that are more elusive. That's a matter, you know, but that's a matter of opinion. Uh, it's a matter of opinion. Uh, and when I say interesting, that doesn't necessarily make them better, but I think it's more fun to try to find uh, what makes them them. I think Paul Thomas Anderson actually does have a little bit more of a signature style. You know, not like the same way Wes Anderson does, mm-hmm. but you can you can kind of tell the kinds of films he shoots because he does tend to shoot them in a similar-ish fashion. No, no, he tends to go with them in a similar uh, fashion. symmetrical and, storytelling, a t- great attention to detail mm-hmm. and costuming and production design, uh, people who tend to be obsessed with their own aesthetics, yeah, often yeah. to the extent that they are losing uh, sight mm-hmm. of whatever is personal and emotional to them. But uh, we're going to talk about him again. We just talked about him, but one of my favorite filmmakers is Akira Kurosawa. And yeah. uh, Kurosawa isn't like uh, of an auteur in that he had those sort of signature shots. He did, mm. but you have to be sort of uh, really paying attention and really deep into his filmography before you start noticing those commonalities. Yeah. I think what he's more interested in is a moral <laughs> universe. He's interested in a philosophy, and that is a much more interesting type of filmmaker to explore. Right. What is their idea more than necessarily their nuts and bolts uh Aesthetics, And this is not to say that there's anything wrong with aesthetics. In fact, I love certain filmmakers that are purely aesthetics. I love Tim Burton. Same. For the most part. He's yeah, done, he's done some crap. Some dots, but, but, yeah, yeah. but even even some of his pilloried films I like. I love Dark Shadows. Uh, yeah, Dark Shadows is great. Uh, I rewatched that recently. It's really good. It holds up, <laughs> yeah, it holds up really well. I've been, this actually calls to mind a conversation that's been going on on Twitter uh, mm. today, actually. We're recording this on a Tuesday. Probably mm. won't go up until a Thursday. Uh, but uh, people were talking about how there is a new film uh, produced by the Russos, mm. uh, Joe and Anthony Russo, who, uh, of course, directed uh, oh, Avengers okay. Endgame. Mm. The, the biggest of the Avengers movies. Yeah, and Captain America, the Winter mm. Soldier, Captain America, Civil War. Um, and they are being advertised as visionary filmmakers. <laughs> did, did, you, did you hear my snicker just then? Yeah, uh, uh, no. No. I'm going to say this right now. I'm not saying that they can't have vision, mm. but what I'm saying is that I don't think that their vision is Kevin Feige's vision. Well, I well, I, yeah, that's kind of my point. I, a, I don't think when you think about filmmakers who very particularly worked within the Marvel system and put their stamp on something, mm. I think of someone like Taika Waititi or yeah. Ryan Coogler. Mm. I don't think of the Russos who made very good films. I've liked all of their films in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I like most of their films overall. But A, the films that people know them from are not their vision. Mm. They're not their story. They're not uh, even particularly telling those stories in a like in a, in a unique sort of way. Yeah, in a unique sort Thank you. I was going to say something about noteworthy. But like, mm. yeah, there's nothing about the way that they tell those stories that 
no other filmmaker would have thought of that. That's just not what they're doing. Uh, well, what they're I, what they're great I, is is choreography. Well, they're they're keeping mm. all the pieces in mm. play. They're making everything work. They're telling great action sequences. I think they're really really great at what they do. But when you look at what their their filmmaking past, they don't really make visionary films. And the films that they do make, they don't make in a visionary way. Their first feature film that was released was a remake of Big Deal on Madonna Street called Welcome to Collinwood. It's fine. Sam, not, Sam Rockwell's good in that movie. Yeah, it's a fun movie. Mm. I, would, I would recommend it. Um, and then, the, like, the only original film that they've ever directed was You, <laughs> Me, and Dupree. Which is a turd. I've never seen that it's one. awful. Okay, but I don't... Did, was it directed with vision? No. Yeah. So It, it was the vision of a mole running yeah. into a wall. They deserve all the credit in the world for making those awesome Cats in America movies and those awesome Avengers movies. I know you're not as big a fan as I am. Uh, I think those I th- movies work. Th- th- no, they work. That's yeah. that's not an issue. I think uh, I think what they did was exemplary. I think they're yeah, some, uh, some But I wouldn't call them visionary directors. I would yeah, no, nor would I. I think that's a different thing. Publicity likes to dictate this kind of bullshit. <laughs> like when Disney like was saying, like, oh the live action Lion King's coming out. No, it is fucking not. <laughs> it's not a live action Lion King. And so everyone's just like, well, if Disney wants to call it that, fuck them. They don't get to decide what words mean. And you don't get to decide what visionary means just because, like, this movie is being produced by filmmakers who directed, like, the biggest movie of all time. I, I will say this Avatar was directed with vision. I don't like it, mm. but it was directed with vision. <laughs> Michael Bay directs with vision. Mm. Nobody does shit the way Michael Bay does. Thank God. But nobody does it that way. Mm. He has vision. You got to be careful with how we apply some of these terms. Mm. Um, So in any case, the the, the overall conversation is, yes, of course, you can look at any filmmaker in terms of how much vision do they have? Do they let the material dictate the style? Mm. Do they let their style uh, uh, run wild on whatever the material is? Mm. That's kind of interesting. But I think there's other facets of that conversation that are a little bit more exciting to me. Um, Here's a a continuation of this conversation uh, from a listener named Piotr. Hello, Piotr. Hello, Piotr. Dear Mr. Bibiani and Rockmeister McCool. McCool is spelled M-C-Q-O-O-L. Nice. Uh, I appreciate the content you're producing very much, and thank you much for that. Uh, It's also warmed my heart to hear that Mr. Bibiani has uh, has read Solaris. Which is probably oh, my top one novel overall. Oh, cool. Nice. I'm not, I'm not um, a heavy reader, so that's okay. cool that um, that happened. I've just listened to one of your older male episodes where you discussed style versus substance. And uh, to my utter surprise, I hear that Clerks has no style. I think... I don't think I, I stand by that statement. I, I don't think it has no style, uh, but I don't think it is in, style over in, substance in terms of like filmmaking. But yeah, yeah okay, write, fair, writing. Let, let's have anyway, this conversation. Uh, that's that's a good sense. Yeah, uh, uh, perhaps the discussion was under the assumption that style equals visuals, and even then, I would argue that Clerks does have style. However, I've always understood style as the entire range of aesthetic choices made by an artist. I always regarded Clerks as an incredibly stylish film, one that is to tell the whole story in one day of the character's life. Although that choice is fairly common. Another is adding the specific soundtrack to the film, the slightly off-kilter alternative rock metal songs with the unforgettable Berserker. My love for you is like a truck berserker! Yeah. Um, uh, But the main feature driving the style of the film is the language of the dialogue. No real-life convenience store slash video rental places have ever seen such lines so quick. 
All right, but you're living in desire and suppressing rage, motherfucker, before a hockey match. Or I don't appreciate your uh, I don't appreciate your ruse, ma'am. Your ruse, your cunning <laughs> attempt to trick me. Uh, and these lines are thrown out all the time, effortlessly. The elaborate language was also the reason why, for a very long time, uh, every subsequent viewing gave me more pleasure. And I'm not even a native English speaker. When I was f- first watching it, is uh, 14 year old, I understood about 40 percent of it. Oh wow! Uh, I guess my point would be, even with the most Basic, boring visuals, a film with uh, a film with excellent uh, dialogue by Aaron Sorkin or Guy Ritchie could still be called stylish. Uh, with the best of regards, Piotr. Uh, yes. Yes mm. to all of that. 100% mm. agree. Uh, technically, <laughs> every movie mm. has style. Because uh, if you're looking at style and substance, and if you're seeing those as separate things, A, I don't think they are, but let's say they, they are. Mm. Um Substance is what you're trying to impart, and style is how you're trying to impart that. Yeah, uh, and you can do that with a heavy application of style mm. through the use of some like really broad kind of storytelling technique, like German expressionism. You can also scale it way the fuck back, and I think mm. that's what we were referring to. And I and I, forgive me, I haven't listened to the exact quote, but if I know us, and I hope I do. If we said Clerks didn't have style, what we meant is that it's very pulled back. It's not in well, your face with its style. It was, it's very neorealist in a lot of ways, actually. It's neorealist by necessity. Um, yeah. it, every film has an aesthetic, whether or not a filmmaker is inserting that in, in there. I mean, one of the one of my favorite aesthetics is from a really horrendously cheap 1953 monster movie called Robot Monster, yeah. where yeah. which is shot out yeah. in the middle of Topanga Canyon, and they put a guy in a gorilla suit and a diving bell helmet with antenna named uh, Roman, and he was he just shoot bubbles. He, he just like spies on people and dreams of living like people, sort of in this post apocalypse. To live like the yeah. human. To live like the human. To live like the human. Um. Dumb piece of shit movie, great. You need to, it's a classic. <laughs> it's like one of the best bad movies ever made. Um, if if uh, if you want to understand Larry Blamir or the skeleton of Cadavra, he mainlined Robot Monster. Clearly, Robot Monster does have a weird sort of f- fabric to it, a kind of aesthetic integrity that is caused by its cheapness. Rather than by its filmmaker, mm. the filmmaker didn't want it to look cheap, didn't want to make make it look sort of like desperately homemade. But that's what comes across, and that's kind of what an enjoyable thing for the viewer. Yeah, uh, and that happened with uh, Clerks now, too. Clerks cost what is it like thirty thousand dollars or something? So yeah, whatever it yeah, costs. Yeah, the, the cost so, of a car, and they they use black and white film stock because that was cheaper at the time. Um, that's one yeah, of the reasons so why it has that aspect. A, a, a lot. So when we say it has no style, we're talking about how uh, desperate times during the filmmaking process mm. took away Kevin Smith's ability to add, for lack of a better term, flash. He wasn't able to necessarily bring his filmmaking flair to it. Now, I've seen a lot of uh, Kevin Smith films since then. The film of his that has any flair whatsoever is my least favorite, Tusk. Uh, everything else feels a little bit straightforward and kind of bland in terms of its visuals. He's not a visionary mm. director when it yeah. comes to his visuals, but you're right. Style goes beyond visuals, and mm. that's a really good point. Um, style of storytelling in cinema goes far beyond just imagery. Mm. You don't even need imagery to tell a film. Look at uh, a Blue. Um, mm. Derek Jarman's film. Yes, was it, yeah. yeah, not uh, Kirsov Kislowski, sorry. Uh, yeah, that movie, The all the images you see, the color blue. 
That's it. It's just the color blue. It's a good movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, when it comes down to what you see in a film, you're not just seeing a shot. You're seeing acting styles. Mm-hmm. You're listening to dialogue or reading dialogue. If it's a silent film or not reading dialogue, it's a silent film. That's a choice, too. Uh, like you're, you're hearing music. You're hearing mm-hmm. sound effects. Uh, you are... Immersed in a film in so many different ways that most people don't really consciously think of while they're watching a movie. And every single one of those decisions had to be made by somebody. Mm. And in the case of a director with a particularly strong sense of how they want their story to be told, those decisions tend to coalesce and to feel very distinctive under that particular director's eye. Mm. So, yeah, Kevin Smith may not be the most visually stylish filmmaker, Mm. Kevin Smith's films have a very particular cadence. Yeah. And I yeah, think that's can, fair to say. You can you can spot a line of Kevin Smith dialogue from a mile away. Yeah. And that's true for mm-hmm. a lot of filmmakers. You mentioned Aaron Sorkin. You could say that for Preston Sturges. Mm-hmm. Uh, who are the other, like, particularly the great, like, writer-directors tend well, to have well, my, my boss, I suppose. Oh, uh, Quentin Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino. Yep. But, yeah. 100%. Quentin Tarantino is also more visually stylish in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, yeah. So, no, it's a good point, and it's worth remembering that we, we tend to focus on the visuals of cinema because it's a visual medium. Mm-hmm. That's only one small part of the tapestry. Yeah. And, and when we when we do make a, a generalized statement like Clerks has no style, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. How there's, there's not a lot of uh, filmmaking panache when compared to what could have been given greater resources. This is one of the uh, reasons why I get really particular about terminology, mm-hmm. uh, because the... You're right, actually, to call us out on that and to mm-hmm. bring these other elements into the conversation. We were uh, amiss if we didn't discuss other elements of style mm-hmm. in cinema. Uh, however, if there was maybe a terminology that meant visual style beyond just style, if style mm-hmm. wasn't so liberally applied in every single way that it is used, and yeah, we could have codified it with visual style, but you mm-hmm. know what I mean. Um, but style is a word that is applies a hundred different ways. Mm-hmm. So when we invent a term, particularly in a distinct industry or art form, uh, in order to clarify what we're discussing and to make sure that clear lines are being drawn, uh, I think that really matters. This is one of the reasons why I get a real bug up my butt when people say something like, and I just brought it up earlier, mm-hmm. uh, the Lion King remake was in live action. Uh-huh. The word live action, the hyphenate, was invented in the 1940s because animated motion pictures were becoming more popular. And now we needed a term that specifically meant not animated. So if it's animated, it's not live action. <laughs> That's literally what the word means. Mm. If you start using live action to describe animated movies that look realistic to you, you've just neutralized all the efficacy of that word. All meaning of that word mm. is dead. We needed that word. We invented that word because it solved a problem. Mm. So, yeah, maybe we should be more careful about our terminology so yeah. that we can avoid these kinds of confusions in the future. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, here's a letter from Ben. Hi, Ben. Hi, Ben. Hey, Bims and Whitney. 
Before I get to my question, I just wanted to thank you both. As a college senior who's just had his last semester, college graduation and countless friendships suddenly cut short. Mm. Your podcasts are such a welcome constant in my quarantined life. I really, truly, deeply appreciate the content and work you each put out. Well, thank you. Uh, on, thank you very much. That's very sweet of you to say. Uh, yeah. On to my question. I've been wanting to ask for a while about each of your relationships with faith in film. Mm. Uh, I don't know uh, what to extend either of you, uh, to what extent either of you consider yourselves either faith-minded or broadly spiritual, so this could be a misfire of a question. Mm. Uh, as the son of a pastor, I found myself often seeking out films that I think will speak to my faith and my emotional connection to it. What surprised me is the types of films that have actually connected to me the most. Uh, for the longest time, I've been seeking out Carl Theodore Dreyer's Ordet. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, and uh, finally got around to it recently. In a way, I thought it might be a more hopeful and optimistic Scandinavian take on faith than the Ingmar Bergman films I've seen, hmm. Seventh Seal, Winter Light. While I liked the film, I found myself realizing that it has, in fact, been the Seventh Seal that has connected to me the most on a faith-minded level, which seems odd knowing Bergman has a rather strong following among the skeptical and decidedly atheistic communities. Hmm. I consider myself quite religious, but I also think a healthy dose of doubt is important. Uh, something about this film's conclusion, especially as uh, Squire Jons, played by uh, Gunnar Bjornstrand, famously spoke, it, uh, spoke to that deeply, a sense of accepting that you cannot overcome the doubt and you might as well live without fearing the silence of God. I enjoyed plenty of other films touching on faith, like First Reformed and Silence, but nothing's matched my spiritual love for The Seventh Seal. In fact, I just ordered the Criterion Blu-ray of it. <laughs> Good for you. Nice. Um, I guess my question is, if you have sought out films to challenge, satisfy, or come to terms with your own spiritualities, are there any films that gave you a sense of deep connections in terms of your faith? Uh, additionally, what are your thoughts on Bergman's thesis on faith, and what do you have any recommendations on other great films about faith to seek out? I pray, no pun intended, this letter hasn't rambled on too long. <laughs> Thank you so much for all that you do, Ben. Okay. Uh, uh, well, first off, uh, mm. we, we've discussed this openly before, mm. but just we're on the same page. Uh, when it comes to our faith. And I mm. think this is a perfectly fair question to ask somebody who reviews art for a living. It's mm. basically asking, where do you come from? What's your philosophy on life? Mm. Uh, I was raised by lapsed Catholics. So there was a general sense of Catholicism, but there you, wasn't... You never a, go to church, did we you? We went to church a couple of times, but it wasn't like on Sunday. We would go for events, like a mm. funeral or something. But um, but no, I wasn't mm. raised particularly religiously. And as I grew up, I became uh, uh, basically an atheist. Mm. Um, my spiritual and philosophical beliefs about the universe and our place within it are a little bit more complicated than that, but when it comes down to organized religion, I don't have one. Mm -hmm. None of them have particularly interested me, some more than others. Mm -hmm. uh, Whitney? Uh, well, I was I was baptized in a Methodist church, just mainline Protestant wasp right over here, and I still go to the same church. Um, my, my faith has always been something a little bit more casual. It's always been part of my life, but it's never been sort of a driving force the way you might see it depicted in movies. I always resented the way religion was depicted in movies, religious mm. people, because uh, they were typically fanatics from my eye. Mm. Um, uh, over the years, you know, I'm, I'm still a uh, you know, practicing Methodist, but I um, keep an open mind uh, yeah. about many different things. And, you know, it's one of the things they're... I love about you. We can have these conversations and it never gets to mm. like, you're wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wrong, right? It's faith. It's yeah, exactly. just, just your faith. Um, yeah. So there, there are days at a time when I'm Buddhist, uh, you know, there are 20 minute periods when I'm completely atheist and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, it, it just sort of comes and goes like the tides. Yeah. Um, 
As for films that speak to faith, it's a difficult thing to address uh, in an art form without seeming like you're proselytizing. Uh, yes. We've talked about faith-based entertainment before, or Christian entertainment, uh, and that refers to a very specific uh, school of filmmaking. Mm. That is church-sponsored school of school of filmmaking. Well, that's what it's come to be. That's in the what last it's come to yeah, ten, th- twenty years or so. That, yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Like in, in the last like couple of decades, this whole resurgence of what they call faith-based entertainment. God's not Does, dead. Yeah, God, yeah, this fireproof. This very fundamental evangelical type of filmmaking that is uh, made specifically to essentially sell Christianity, specifically mainline Protestant Christianity. And I find uh, a lot of those movies to be rather offensive or at least mm, condescending in their construct. However, there are some good ones. They've been getting better. Uh, we've yeah. seen some recently here that were really, really good. Um, um, there was uh, one I saw last year. It was actually nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Song called Breakthrough. Okay. Um, that was pretty good. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a little simplistic in some regards, yeah, but, but then, it was very well made and very respectable. And But then you and I, and this is one of the only times this has happened, we were the only ones in the theater on opening night for <laughs> Left Behind. <laughs> the Nicolas Cage The, the Nicolas version. Cage yeah. Rapture movie. And, uh, and yeah, that one was... Really preachy, thuddingly bad, badly made. Yeah, no, no things of interesting of no. interest to say about it faith. Did not work. And yeah, you'll find that the more thoughtful films about faith tend to be a little bit more ambiguous about it. Challenging think, yeah, is the word I go to. The ones brilliant. that want to explore faith rather than just tell you what you, they think exactly you what the, the function faith plays in the world and how how. What I appreciate when it's a story about how difficult it is to be a good person. That's why yeah. I really like First Reformed, uh, yeah. the Paul Schrader film. I, I like that kind of story, uh, too, whether mm. it, it's tied to religion or not. Mm. Well, but you know, when, when you're staging it from a religious counterpoint, there's always a strong moral element. How do you mm. be the best person? How do you live in God's light, essentially? Sure. And uh, I, I appreciate when a film shows you that not only is that not easy, that might... That, is almost impossible and it's difficult to just be a human being as is in this universe without mm. you know having any kind of moral answer yeah. uh, first performed is more or less a remake of robert brisson's diary of a country priest mm-hmm. uh, i recommend you see diary of a country priest and also o hussard balthazar one of the best jesus stories mm. without christ in it at all it's about a donkey <laughs> uh uh, yeah, the people who are exploring faith from sort of a different perspective are always the ones that are going to have a much more uh, interesting and they're frequently, take on, philis- on religious philosophy. And they're frequently pilloried for having a new take. The movie mm-hmm. that I, I never really – again, I wasn't particularly raised in a religious household. Again, mm-hmm. we were generally told, God's real. Mm-hmm. Don't, uh, don't do any of those Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. And, gu- and guilt, I'm sure. Yo, guilt gu- oh, we yeah. had a lot of guilt. Yeah. Guilt was there. <laughs> Catholic guilt. Guilt, is, yeah. guilt, that's, guilt that's survived. Left. That's the last thing to go. Guilt survived the process. I'm filled with guilt <laughs> over everything. That part was fine. But generally speaking, you know, there wasn't a lot of dogma. Mm. Uh, so I would watch a lot of faith-based films. And I'd be interested, but I wouldn't really feel anything. And a lot of them would just be sort of background noise. Like mm. I'd watch something like... The Bishop's Wife, which is about a bishop who has been focusing so much on his work that his marriage is failing, and an angel comes to help him and ends up making him jealous because of all the time the angel's spending with his wife. <laughs> it's not really a religious film. Religion's kind of a background yeah. in that. It's sweet. It's not anti- about, it's not sacrilegious in any way, but it's... it's. Well, how about something like Going My Way, which is explicitly religious? Uh, so. I actually... I'm a, I'm a big fan of The Bells of St. Mary's, which is a sequel oh, to Going okay. My Way. Um, because that deals... I, I actually don't like the ending. I think the ending's... 
a bit of a cop out. Okay. But for the most part, I appreciate the way that there are people of faith who are trying to find a way to make actual change. Uh, many uh, often with people who don't share their faith, and those mm-hmm. are interesting stories that are being told. Mm-hmm. When I think of the movies that made me really think about and question mm-hmm. my faith or lack thereof. Um, I tend to think of the films that are a bit more controversial. I remember the first time I saw The Last Temptation of Christ. Okay. Martin Scorsese's adaptation of uh, that very controversial novel. I am, for the first time in my whole life, thought to myself, well, Jesus is awesome. I'd follow him. And then I found out all the Christians were saying that that's not, that's not Jesus. And I'm just like, well, then I've lost all interest. <laughs> because that Jesus, yeah. Scorsese's punk rock Jesus... I mean, not like literally. He doesn't have a mohawk or anything like that. But like, he's 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 a he's a rabble rouser, and he's a fighter, and he's, he's passionate, passionate, and he makes, around, and he yeah. makes mistakes, and he admits the, like all of these things that are just sort of humanizing him without ever bringing his overall message down. Mm-hmm. That for me was a very profound experience. Okay, so that meant a lot to me. And on the opposite end of that, you have something like the ruling class, uh, which mm-hmm. is a very bitter. Yeah, uh, yeah, black comedy takes uh, down of religious institutions. Uh, yeah. Kind of. I also think, in some respects, it's actually fairer to religion than a lot of people think. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ruling class stars Peter O'Toole as uh, uh, a, a young nobleman mm-hmm. who has inherited his uh, father's vast estate and fortune. Uh, problem is, uh, Peter O'Toole has been institutionalized because he thinks he's Jesus Christ. So they had to take him out of the institution because all of this money has to go somewhere. And he just walks around being Jesus and being really funny and being really, really likable. And there's this whole wonderful bit where he, like, does his whole Jesus thing, tells everybody about Jesus stuff. He's totally committed. There's no doubt in his mind that he's Jesus. And then he leaves the room. And then, the like, the lawyer who's just left behind is like, Jesus Christ. And then Peter O'Toole walks in. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> little subtle yeah, thing. Oh, yeah. it's, it's, and, and, you know, there's an element of sacrilege yeah. to that. But... Well, the movie argue, but the movie yeah. argues, mm-hmm. ultimately, after going to some very dark places, when they try to uh, unbrainwash him and end up making him worse mm-hmm. in a lot of really horrible ways. But what they're really arguing is that faith, well, objectively, may seem silly or strange. Or just Christ-like goodness has yeah. no place in this world. Yeah, yeah, it has a place in this world. And that if we try to get rid of that we may be losing something in the process. Yeah, and that's something yeah. that I think Ang Lee also tried to explore in Life of Pi, yeah, a movie yeah. I very much enjoy. So yeah. these are the films that really interest yeah. me, the films that well, are about sort of that line. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, when films that sort of got me off in a religious sort of way, uh, probably the works of Terrence Malick. Yeah, he's a very uh, spiritual filmmaker. He's an incredibly spiritual filmmaker. He's... Uh, Become a little bit more Christian in recent years. I think A Hidden Life is like one of the best Christian movies. I think you're right about that. Uh, starting with Tree of Life and his the the kind of footnote to Tree of Life uh, to the Wonder. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are both they share a lot of similar things, and they're about sort of how faith is essentially trying to brush up against the infinity of the human experience. Yeah, and I think to an extent you can see the early underpinnings of that in his Thin Red Line. Yeah, where yeah, you yeah, see the war of, is this sort of intruding force that is yeah. uh, destroying the natural order yeah, of yeah. things, or uh, how you know, 
modern colonialism does the same thing in the new world. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, uh, the, it, it's been in there for a bit, but he mm, really started codifying it in Tree of Life. Yeah, with Tree of Life. Right? Yeah. And Tree of Life is probably his masterwork, although I think Hidden Life is also excellent. Mm-hmm. What I still a pity think Days nobody of talks is, about that one. I still think Days of Heaven is, is, is number one. But, it's it's, true, it's yeah. his most like movie, movie, if you will. Yeah, uh, it's so much it's, yeah. um, but, but they're all, yeah, they're all wonderful. They're all there. Um, I'd be interested to know if there were any films that spoke to your atheism. Uh, if there's a film mm. that uh, you saw that was explicitly atheist, that sort of shored up <laughs> any of your your fe- your religious feelings in sort of the, you know, the non-existence of God. That's an interesting point, and it typically yeah. doesn't come up. I feel like any movie in which God is not considered a relevant plot point... Mm-hmm. Is typically to me an atheist film. Okay. Uh, the movie that I think of when I think of atheism in film is actually a movie that I think disproves mm. atheism within its plot, but I think it is about atheism fundamentally, and that's Frank Darabont's adaptation of The Mist. Okay, yeah, yeah. The Mist is a horror movie, and I'm not going to ruin the ending for those of you who haven't seen it. Many people consider it to be one of the most harrowing movie endings ever. I will not dispute that. However... That's pretty harrowing. Oh, oh, it's really fucked up. Like, it's a dark ending. It's as dark as they come. And some people feel betrayed by that ending. For me, that ending is exactly set up by the text. Mm. What happens in the mist is a mysterious mist covers an entire town. Of course... In Maine. In Maine. But it covers an entire town. We follow a group of people who, when this strange phenomenon occurred, were all inside a very large supermarket. Mm. And they're trapped in a supermarket. And they don't know what to do. They don't know if the mist is poisonous. They don't know. But eventually we find out that there are monsters in the mist. Unhuman, Lovecraftian creatures Mm. that want them dead. And as the situation goes on and becomes increasingly dire, uh, the local uh, zealot, uh, played beautifully by Marsha Gay Harden, uh, who has firm beliefs on how this is the apocalypse and Mm. how... God like, has like come a, for all of everyone who doesn't believe in it. Biblical Christian yeah. version of the apocalypse. Yeah. Um, every sane person in the cast, every particularly rational, decent person in the mm. cast, rejects everything that she's saying. The movie doesn't disagree with her. <laughs> and that's something that I think the movie is very specifically discussing, is mm. the idea of if religion is real... Does, does is, that mean the dark parts is, are also real? Yeah. Does that mean the dark parts of religion are also real? And would we not have to come to terms with that? Would the moral thing to do be to reject that? But if so, wouldn't that come with horrifying consequence? Yes. <laughs> I find that to be a very interesting and very challenging film about atheism. It's kind of a horror story for atheists. Yeah. Where religion is real, but it's all the worst parts you were afraid of. Those are the only parts that are real. Those right are the now. parts. Oh, yeah. Are, yeah, those are the parts that matter right now, mm-hmm. and so like those are the parts that are inescapable. That for me is fascinating. That's one of the mm-hmm. reasons why I think that movie is a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Is not because it's a great monster movie. It is not because it has a fucked up ending. It does, but because that fucked up ending very specifically verifies everything the religious zealot said, mm-hmm. and so you're kind of forced to accept God is real, and everything's fucked up anyway. <laughs> that that the idea yeah. that there that there is re- religion is real. Mm-hmm doesn't actually necessarily doesn't save, make anything save better. the world from being completely fucked up. No, and that's something that really challenges mm. whether or not you, you your atheism actually amounts to anything. Yeah, so yeah. for me, that's the movie I think of yeah. a lot. Um, 
I'm trying to think of other films that are specifically atheist. Uh, the Invention of Lying, written by Ricky Gervais. You know, I never f- saw that. Famously atheist. Um, the the um, People don't understand what he's getting away with. He's uh, the, the conceit of the film is it takes place in an alternate universe where lying was never invented. And Ricky Gervais plays a character who can lie for the first time. He just sort of discovers the as he makes it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No one, it never occurred to anybody to, to, to just make something up. And nobody understands what lying is. And by the end of the film, he's cornered by the rest of the characters. And he says, well, you can't uh, you can't get rid of me because uh, because God. Mm. I, I'm going to make up God. God is the ultimate lie. And of course, that's a very Ricky Gervais way to write a story. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it's, there aren't so many films that are very explicitly about atheism uh, that sort of talk it up. Um, Sausage Party. I was going to bring up Sausage Party. Sausage Party Sausage, is one of them, yeah. Uh, kind of fascinating that uh, Seth Rogen, who also produced This Is The End, uh, is the one who's exploring complex religious thought the most <laughs> in popular cinema. Because, uh, uh, yeah, This Is The End is also a religious allegory. Notice it's about the rapture. Notice nobody in Hollywood gets raptured. <laughs> like it's nobody like this, at all. This big Hollywood party and nobody vanishes out of that party. They're just all left behind. Which is why they're uh, oblivious to it. Yeah, yeah so <laughs> no all, all of these Hollywood suspended. stars are completely, uh, completely oblivious <laughs> to the fact that everybody just got raptured. That's a fun movie. Uh, um, yeah, but Sausage Party, unbelievably crass, arguably offensive. It deals with mm-hmm. racial stereotypes. In I, a think way it's, I think it's offensive. I think it's, it's trying to be. It's, 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 it is trying job. to be offensive. But yeah, it, yeah, it's about how the food you buy at the grocery store sees shoppers as gods, and they worship gods, and they think the gods are going to bless them when really they're just food to be taken home and eaten. So, and the scene where they find yeah. out that they're going to be devoured is yeah. so fucking horrifying. It's, it's, yeah, it's all really horrifying, and, and it ends up you know, they throw over, over with their human masters and just have a big food orgy. It's the most disgusting thing. As though thing. that's the yeah. inevitability. Like, what if yeah, when like, you died, you didn't go to heaven. You were just eaten by giant monsters. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Well, also it's predicated on this notion that you can't you can't be religious and also have an orgy. You can be religious and have an orgy. What's stopping read, you? Read the Bible. Nothing. Yeah. Jeez. Orgies everywhere. <laughs> Christian group sex swingers. It's a thing. Um, I, okay. Why not? Yeah, if you say so. But uh, <laughs> so sorry. But yeah, Sausage Party does does deal with uh, religious thought and sort of the benevolence of the gods if they exist at all, and what happens when we literally kill them. It is about deicide. Yeah, um, a lot of people were concerned when uh, uh, the Golden Compass came out mm. that uh, it was going to deal a little bit too explicitly with atheism because the books do. Yeah. Philip Pullman, the author, is very explicitly atheist, and uh, in the third book, the two main characters, the two teenagers, kill God. Yeah. They literally kill like God is like an ancient useless angel in a glass case that doesn't do anything anymore but we still worship it anyway for some reason and they break the case and kill god the star trek 5 the final frontier count as an atheist film um maybe maybe uh, because the movie is is about the search for at the center of the universe a being who might be god might have created the universe might Mm -hmm. be the god that we've all spoken about in hushed tones and when they get there they find out not so much Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is about, and I actually appreciate this about that movie. It has a lot of missteps, it's but che- the big che- idea, cheaply made and badly made. But, but uh, the yeah. big idea at the center of it is very Star Trek. Is there a place for religion mm. in a future based on pure science? I think uh, I think the film argues that yes. I think the film uh, Star Trek has always been very egalitarian about that, mm. about sort of making sure that there's room for people who believe and people who do not believe, and there's there's not going to be an enforced idea. Uh, in the future, mm. uh, um, I've, I have to revisit it before uh, I'll say whether or not I think you're um, right or not. 
I think it was Alejandro Amenabar made a film called Agora. Oh, yeah. Which yeah, is yeah. also very stridently atheist about uh, Hypatia, the, the ast- famous ast- Roman astronomer. And she was uh, rather famously killed by early Christians. She was a, a martyr to the atheist cause, more or less. And, uh, yeah, it's a biopic. Uh, Rachel Weiss played Hypatia, and it was about uh, sort of the rise of early Christianity and how what a malignant force that was hmm. in the world at the time and sort of shows kind of how meaningless all of that was. Yeah. It's very, very pointedly atheist. Hmm. Um, yeah. If you're looking for something to sort of shore up your atheism, Agora would be a good one. All right. Well, uh, this has been very interesting. I think we should move on. All right. But, uh, thank uh, you for the great question. It's something we don't talk about a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad, glad we can discuss A lot, a lot of movies um, uh, don't delve into hmm. religion terribly much. I think they're trying hmm. not to alienate anybody who doesn't, feel a part of yeah, that religion but the ones that do sometimes run into the trouble mm, of proselytizing mm, so it's really good to talk about right. all those movies and everything in between yeah. alright and Darren Aronofsky's Old Testament movies watch those oh, uh, oh yeah uh, Noah no, Noah and Mother are both Old Testament movies <laughs> um, anyway then here's a letter from that's just signed with the letter E hello E hello. Uh, hi Bibbs and Whitney I'm writing this full of excitement after watching a new film. I sent you an email literally yesterday where I asked you if you had any Swedish films you'd like to recommend, and I offered up uh, the films Sami Blood and A Man Called Uva as my own recommendations. Mm. Then today I went out and saw And Then We Danced, and must add it to the list. There you go. I reviewed this one. Um, what are some films you recommend that have great dancing in them? Seen, uh, I've seen a lot of films with good dancings and montages, and I love musicals, but I've never seen a film use dancing the way And Then We Danced did. It was powerful, exhilarating, and full of emotions, and it told a story. The dancing wasn't just there to be pretty. It was such a big part of the storytelling, the relationship that de- develops between the main character and his love interest, largely builds while they're dancing. And, slight spoilers, the final scene is a beautifully executed dance where the main character stands up for who he is without saying a single word and makes his point and then just walks out. I was ecstatic at the end of it, even though, uh, even if you don't like the plot of the movie, although I think most people did, you can't deny the power of those dance scenes. I want to watch more films with dancing like that, so please send them my way if you have them, exclamation point. Uh, then he, he gives a synopsis of, of And Then We Dance, but I review No, no, it. So we review it. It's yeah, fine. Um, uh, thank you. Any left? Oh, uh, yeah. He says, uh, this, this also brings me to another question. If it feels a bit odd that the Academy Awards only nominate five films for Best Foreign Language Film, but only nominate ten for Best Movie, Best Film nominations are usually mainly American films, and so are the nominees in all the other categories. So they can so they can find up to ten great films within America, but only five from the rest of the world. Yeah. I understand that it's an American award, and that other countries have their own awards, like the, the Guldbagen and other... And, and being nominated for an Academy Award isn't a be-all and end-all, but still they have chose, chosen to have a category, and you can't deny the international attention the Academy Awards have, so why not just nominate more foreign language films? Do you have any thoughts on this? Sincerely, E. Uh, I just flat-out agree with you. Yeah, that, the, the whole foreign language like Oscar, international uh-huh. Oscars, and now is, um, is kind of fucked. I mean, it, it is the American Motion Picture Academy, so uh-huh. uh, it is specifically oh. about American films. So but it, Parasite it, won Best Picture, so who gives it, a shit? So really, really, it doesn't There's matter. no it's, major distinction here. It would be nice if we could have five American films and ten international films, because there are more countries than America. You'd think. I mean... At the uh, very least, I mean, only one can still win, yeah, but mo- think. Most Americans don't really know that, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 say, I say simply. Uh, but you have asked a question about one of my favorite genres, the <laughs> dance genre. The dance genre is, in my in my opinion, pure cinema. Mm. Dancing is nothing quite like it in a movie. Like maybe fencing. Like that's it. 
Like it's a it's a masterful piece of choreography that can be filmed beautifully or just static shot and watch Fred Astaire go. Yeah. And if someone's talented enough, it's gorgeous. Now, to speak more to your point, you're not just looking for films that have dancing in them. Mm-hmm. A lot of movies have dancing in them. You're thinking about movies that tell a story through dancing. Mm-hmm. And that's very exciting. And a lot of them do that. Mm-hmm. In particular, the film that jumps to my mind is the Japanese film Shall We Dance, which is not okay. to be confused with the Fred Astaire Ginger Rogers movie, which is good, but has some dated sections in it. Shall We Dance is about a Japanese businessman who feels a bit stifled. You know, he has a boring job. Uh, his marriage and his family feels a bit alienating to him. He doesn't feel close to them. Mm-hmm. And so he decides, after work, to take ballroom dancing lessons. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's the movie. The movie is fucking wonderful. The movie is inspiring and beautiful without ever really calling attention to itself. There's no giant dance number. It's just someone getting better at a thing and Mm. finding a way to express himself through that thing. And then finally finding a way to share that thing with the people who care about him, Mm. even though initially he only did it because he felt so alone. Beautiful movie. I highly Mm. recommend everyone see it. It's so damn good. Uh, storytelling told through dance. Um, I'm going to throw an obscure one at you. Mm. Guy maddened in a ballet film. <laughs> I actually never saw it. It's called Dracula, Pages from a Virgin's Diary. Nice. It's the ballet of Dracula, shot in silent film style. Yes. See it? It's 67 minutes long. You'll love it. <laughs> Seek it out. Um, uh, yeah, the, it's it's just just dancing. Yeah. And uh, an Asian actor plays Dracula. I think that's one of the only main... Well, I can't really call it Guy Madden film mainstream, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's uh, yeah, one of the only Asian Draculas I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, as for films that sort of express themselves through dance and let you know what is going on through dance, that's what Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers did. Mm-hmm. They uh, acted through dance. They're... You would only be convinced they fell in love because they danced so well. Yeah. If they didn't dance well, the plot wouldn't work. The plot is kind of irrelevant anyway. No, the plot um, in those movies is mostly bad, actually. Uh, to express how evil the witches were, Luca Guadagnino's version of Suspiria... Ah, that's a good pick. ...is actually a really excellent way of... a uh, really excellent film that weaves dance into the narrative. Dance is actually a really big part of that movie. Mm. And how they dance and what function the dancing serves. I actually... It's I, really important that we see it and how it goes down. It's really intense and scary. Mm-hmm. And of course the, uh, the quote, marionette scene sequence. Oh, that's be, like the, where two people are dancing on two different floors and horrible things are happening to one of them. Yeah. I, I, I prefer mm. I still prefer the original version of Suspiria, but that's one of the things that I love about it. Luca Guadagnino really mm. thought about the original movie and thought about what he could bring out of it. And the original film takes place at a ballet school. Mm. That's not actually relevant. <laughs> it's just interesting. It's just, it's a, setting, it's just yeah. an interesting locale to, to Dario Argento. It's not really super important to anything. Like you could have put it at a different school and it would have been basically the same film. The remake of Suspiria, that's about dancing. Mm. That's and, a really good pick. I like and, that. I don't know if it would have occurred to me right off the top. And of the head. echoes of World War II and the Bader Meinhof group. That movie's about all, all kinds of stuff. Bless them. I they love really, that movie. They, they, I need to revisit that. I've been meaning <laughs> to for yeah. a while. I'm going to go with uh, uh, another one mm. that is I, my first pick was very reserved. This is not reserved. Mm. 
This is Strictly Ballroom. <laughs> a movie I love to pieces. Yeah. It's one of the movies that sort of ignited my love of film in the early 90s. Uh, it's a film directed by Baz Luhrmann, who would eventually become uh, way more famous for directing Moulin Rouge and William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet. Uh, but Strictly Ballroom was his first feature, and it is about ballroom dancing in Australia, uh, which is full of larger-than-life characters. And it is about a young man who wants to express himself through ballroom dancing, not just use the same old steps. So he invents <gasps> new steps. <laughs> and no one will dance with him. He was considered a rising star, but he has thrown his career away by trying to put new steps into ballroom dancing. And only a wallflower uh, who, who works at his dance studio believes in him. So he, they teach each other how to dance for the first time. Mm. It's over the top. It's rife with cliches. <laughs> it is also, and I'm going to use a word here, perfect. Oh, I love Strictly Ballroom <laughs> more than I love many things. It is a delightful, kooky, romantic, mm. over the top movie that really does tell a story through dance. And I admire that. Anything yeah. else? I mean, we, we haven't even sprouted up Step Up yet. Well, Step Up is a, a prime example as to uh, how great it is to just stop a movie dead and watch some dancing. Uh, it's like mostly, yeah, mostly a few exceptions. Like if, if you look at sort of the history of, of Broadway musicals, like stage musicals, uh, for the longest time, uh, songs did not advance story. The the, mm. the the play, the plot would stop while you have a little number about you know the lullaby of Broadway. Yeah. Um, it, it wasn't until uh, Oklahoma came out that the story and the songs started to complement each other. Oklahoma is actually a really, really revolutionary musical in terms of the, the history of the genre. I've actually never seen Oklahoma. <sighs> tis, tis. Oh, Michelle is giving me a frown. <laughs> she's a fan. She's, sing she's actually sung it many times. A, and every time I'm just like, if I don't recognize it, it's probably from Oklahoma. There's, there's a bright golden haze on the fucking meadow. The corn is I, as high as an elephant's eye, and I you will heard, love it! I have heard that Judd may or may not be dead. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> it's actually a weird blind spot, you, and we should totally get around to that, You Sarah. Philistine! I know! I've not seen Oklahoma. I'm sorry. Um, it never came up. But uh, Step Up is in sort of the old musical tradition. It's not like Oklahoma, where they're actually using the dances to really advance a lot. It's about contests. They're, they're structured like sports movies, for God's sake. Well, they win the big contest at the end. <laughs> uh, may, maybe the first one is about, well, my, my ballet dancing needs a little more street. My street yeah. dancing needs a little more ballet. Yeah, the first one's a bit more about love and style. Yeah. And uh, You got some chocolate my peanut butter. You know, it was... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It, really simple stuff. Um, no. Oh, and then the fourth one is about protest art. They use dance in order to stop a Donald Trump analog from... Played by Peter Gallagher. Yeah, from gentrifying Miami. It's Miami, right? It's Miami. Yeah, 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 yeah. They should have just called it Step Up Miami. They, that was the original title. Yeah, yeah. And then they decided that, I guess if you weren't from Miami, you might not love it so much. Yeah, all, all, all of those movies are good. Six isn't so great. Oh, six is not good. Yeah. No, six is just, <laughs> five is gets a little doofy, but the, the highs massively outweigh the lows. Mm. And the first one is, the leads are really good. The movie itself is just kind of okay. Two through four is the sweet two spot. Three, yeah. and, and two through four is glorious. And, and three is the height of American cinema. Uh, pretty uh, much. I also recommend uh, the high-strung movies. They're from, also... From the makers of the Step Up movies. Uh, some of them. 
Uh, I think. Um, oh no, I'm not thinking of High Strong. I'm thinking of something different. I think I think of something different. No, no. Uh, uh, High Strong is. Uh, they're also very broad. Um, they're there's perhaps a little melodramatic and silly, mm. uh, but they're about. They're two films about a dancer and a musician who find each other and who explore their art together. Mm. So the first one is about a dancer, uh, a group, a whole dance group actually, a troupe uh, that teams up. With this really badass violinist, <laughs> and then the second one is about this really badass piano player who teams up with uh, uh, a young woman who is an understudy for a major Broadway production. Um, they're they're very simple in a lot of ways, but dance movies are allowed to be simple. I think. I think there are some movies in which the simple joys that they present, it's okay not to clutter them up. Mm-hmm. I don't demand a lot of them. Uh, so something like High Strong or High Strong Free Dance or Step Up, Two Through Four in particular, them being kind of simplistic and straightforward in a lot of ways isn't to their detriment. It just highlights what the movie is really trying to do. Mm-hmm. So I like those a lot. Um, hey. how, how do you feel about, I'm curious about this, because yeah. a lot of the best dance sequences in history aren't so much from dance movies per se, and I use that in air quotes, which no mm-hmm. one can see but you, uh, but in musicals. Yeah. Is something like Singing in the Rain or... Uh, the other singing in the rains. American in Paris. American in Paris is <laughs> another right. good example. Uh, are those also dance movies? Or are they hmm. musicals and musicals incorporate dance as they choose? Well, hmm. I mean, now we're just splitting hairs. Uh, I think it. Well, da- I think it's a question. Dance movie has no singing. Okay. Singing musical. Period. Okay, so that's a dance movie, but there may yeah. be there may be dancing there's in dance, a musical. There's dancing in music. Dancing ever. There's, there's dancing in musicals, but there is no music in dance movies. Well, there is music. Oh, and there's no singing. There's no singing. There's no, yeah. Typically, there's no singing. Yeah. There's a few exceptions, but yeah. No, no, nobody sings in Step Up. Actually, someone does sing in Step Up. Somebody's in the first there, Step Up? In the first, there's a party. And there's like a, a band at the art oh, school. Yeah, yeah. There's one number in the original Step Up where somebody mm. sings. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's, it's actually not, it's actually it's a not cute, a mu- still not a musical. No, no, no. It's fine. It's 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 yeah. One musical number does not make your movie a musical. Yeah. That's just how it is. There's one live action shot in Jav Favreau's The Lion King. Mm. It's still not live action. <laughs> that doesn't count. Mm. Like that's not how that works. Yeah. Anyway, um, but that's a great question. I love that. I hope you check out those movies and I hope you like them. Absolutely. Uh, it's one of our favorite genres. We got time for one last uh, one? One last one. I've, I've been going back a little bit because yeah. the way I read letters is I try to read things that have just come in. Like we had one that refers to something that happened today, for yeah, instance. Yeah, we want to uh, stay topical when we uh, can. But at the same time, I, I also reach back and try to read some older ones that we've missed from a couple months ago. So yeah. uh, if you haven't heard your letter, and also we don't have time to read every single letter. No, so we, do we do our best. And this is the system. We, but I, we don't I, want every, people's letters to get lost forever. We want there to be a chance for them to yeah, get Yeah, so I do read some of your old letters occasionally. Uh, some... It, it's a mix. I try to keep it. Yeah, so it's going to be a letter about, like, um, we really hope the parasite doesn't win Best Picture or something. Uh, uh, like something like that. But this, <laughs> here's a letter from Anthony uh, okay. from a couple months ago. So, greetings, critically acclaimed team. I hope you'll pardon me, but I actually have to start off with a tangent because I realize the initials for critically acclaimed team spells cat. And that's only fitting <laughs> considering the numerous appearances by Luca and Sergio on your podcast. I like that. <laughs> I guess it's only a matter of time before you find gents do an iron list of most memorable feline characters in film. They're all from cats. <laughs> that is not true. Every last one. That is not There are no other true. notable that cat is, characters. No, they, they, all, they all stopped existing after cats. Because uh, cats, cats reached the peak and we can't move past it. Dude. 
You got through three whole lives of Thomasina, and that's your takeaway? <laughs> Some bullshit. That, that is that is, uh, that is one darn cat. That darn... Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, back to my reason for writing. I went to see 1917 at the tail end of December. There you go. I greatly enjoyed the film. I typically pay no attention to reviews prior to seeing a movie as I want to, uh, to go in with minimal outside influence. Admirable. A lot of people practice that. I did listen to one podcast reviewer, however, uh, because the gentleman in question is exceptionally good about spoilers. He was so good, in fact, that I went into 1917 without knowing about the way the story was presented. That is the unusual bit of editing employed throughout the film. That oh, is, wow. It's made to look like one take. Wow. Um, okay. I believe that my not knowing about this presentation beforehand contributed in part to my enjoyment of the movie. My disco- discovering the technique Mendes used for his film came as a surprise when I finally clued into what he was doing about 10 minutes in, and the discovery in itself was very rewarding. With so many trailers these days revealing too much about the films they are promoting, I was grateful for how the trailer for 1917 gave no indication about the storytelling technique. My question for you, Katz, not Luca and Sergio, <clears throat> is how do you decide what to reveal in your reviews? Did the 1917 press kit mention the unusual presentation in the film? Did Mendes or actors openly talk about the technique in interviews? As someone who writes film reviews fairly regularly, I'm aware of how difficult it can be to discuss movies without giving away plot points or other key elements of the film. There's probably no right answer to this question of how much is too much when it comes to revealing a film's content, but I was curious as to whether or not you kind gentlemen have rules of thumb that you follow. Uh, somewhat related to the above would be advertising that withholds vital details about a film. I'm not referring to things about a quick exit by a marquee star, like in that so-so space station under siege film from 2017. Uh, rather, I'm talking about something along the lines of 2007's Sweeney Todd. The main film critic of the BBC periodically mentions the American trailer for the movie because he's immensely amused by the fact that it carefully avoids telling the audience that the film is a musical. Not revealing the genre would seem to be a pretty big deal, but here we are with a trailer that does exactly that. I haven't seen Sweeney Todd and can only guess that DreamWorks left out all the singing bits in the trailer because of the lack of faith in the vocal talents of the cast, or perhaps one actor in particular. I just wanted to hear your theories as to why a studio would go to the trouble of making a film and then not tell viewers what type of movie it is. Also, are there other instances of this level of concealment of marketing that you can recall? Keep up the fabulous work, gentlemen, and warm regards. Anthony. Okay, a lot of big questions there. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's start at the back end, though. Um, regards to a movie studio making a movie and then f- getting freaked out and trying to advertise it as something else. This mm-hmm. happens all the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, movie studios don't necessarily always think with the same head that their marketing team thinks of. Um, and this has led to a lot of problems. One of my favorite examples of this uh, was uh, Andrew Stanton talking about the Disney movie John Carter. Mm. The original title of the movie was John Carter of Mars. He was told by the marketing team, we can't call it John Carter of Mars. And he's like, why? It's called John Carter of Mars. And he said, well... I think he wanted to call it Princess of Mars, and then they say we can't have it about princesses. It's got to be an action movie. It's called John Carter of Mars. We can't have it called John Carter of Mars because Mars movies don't sell. Mo- yeah, movies about Mars. Yeah, movies about stars, Mars have been a tough sell for audiences forever. We can't call it John Carter of Mars. Can we just call it John Carter? And he's like, well, that's not very interesting. I'll tell you what I'll do. We'll call it John Carter at the beginning of the movie, but at the title card at the end of the movie, we'll say John Carter of Mars because it completes his journey. Now he is of Mars. Mm-hmm. And that was how he rationalized this to himself. So he was very surprised. When the marketing campaign was full of posters that were bright red Mm. all over. And when he asked them, why are they all this red? And the marketing team said, so people know it's on Mars. (laughs) It was called on Mars. It was, we were, now we're fine with it? What happened? (laughs) Marketing departments have ideas about what puts butts in seats. Sometimes they're right. Mm. Sometimes they have no 
fucking idea and they fuck things up and they mismarket a movie they insist on you know encouraging people to give it a bad title i don't trust marketing departments this is one of the reasons why i am a film critic and your which goes to your overall question how do film critics decide what to reveal Uh, marketing departments lie we're supposed to tell you the truth we are uh, actually but the what is marketed is actually a good uh barometer for what we're allowed to put in our reviews yeah if it's Uh, in the trailer people know about it uh, there, there was the a studio big, was fine with you knowing that. Yeah, so there was a big uh, sort of contention with um, Terminator 5, mm. uh, Terminator Genesis. Oh, yeah. Uh, where yeah. it was revealed in the trailers for that movie that the character of uh, almost a John Carter, uh, John Connor, uh, who was uh, in the mythology of the, the Terminator movies, meant to grow up and lead a human revolt against the machines that had risen yeah. up to destroy Savior humanity. Savior of yeah, humanity. Saver, the great Saver hero of, of the franchise. And yeah, uh, he, he was played by Edward Furlong in Terminator 2. Uh, protecting this guy and making sure that he became a great leader was the premise of this series. And in Terminator 5, it was revealed that John Connor had been replaced by an evil robot and was himself a Terminator. Yeah, so now John Connor uh, is the bad guy. This mm. is the reveal halfway through the movie. Mm. This is after the movie already had a pretty big reveal in which it starts off as kind of a remake of the original Terminator. But then except, it starts mucking with the mythology yeah, immediately. Except Kyle yeah. Reese goes back in time to save Sarah Connor from the original Terminator, and then the Terminator, and then Sarah Connor ends up saving him from a T-1000 who wasn't mm. supposed to be there. It's all very confusing. These are all plot points from the movie that are meant to become as a huge surprise. Mm-hmm. Problem is, and I wrote an article about this, which I think has disappeared from the internet. It makes me sad because I was proud of this one, called The Genesis Effect, in which a filmmaker or screenwriter or people involved in making a movie make a movie in which a twist happens so early in the movie it's impossible to market the film without spoiling it. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't say, and by the way, the timeline's been muddled, or by the way, John Connor is the bad guy, if you don't reveal at least one of those things, you're just going to tell people you're remaking the original Terminator. Mm -hmm. And that's not what you've got, and that would be false advertising, and people might get mad at you if you betray that. So that movie, they probably should have thought of that before they went into production, <laughs> because they were damned if they did and damned if they didn't. Also, yeah. the movie wasn't very good. That that was yeah, was yeah. That, that doesn't help. If it was a good movie, I could like I fine. Yeah. Like Red Eye, you spoiled the twist in Red Eye. Mm. Red Eye is a good example here. It's a Wes Craven movie. Uh, it stars Rachel McAdams. She goes on a plane. She meets a very nice guy played by Killian Murphy. It's all very romantic comedy. They're all very romantic comedy. And then about 30 minutes into the movie, they're sitting next to each other on this plane. And he reveals that he's actually her kidnapper. And she's being kidnapped in plain sight. And if she tells anybody, he will call someone on the phone and they will kill her father. Very intense. Very Hitchcockian. Great setup. Mm -hmm. Wes Craven directed it. Pretty solid thriller overall. The ending gets a little over the top, but it's pretty damn good. Problem is, the whole movie is based on that twist at the first act mark. You can't advertise the movie without telling people that's going to happen because otherwise you're just telling people it's a romantic comedy. Mm. And people who would pay to see romantic comedy would probably be pissed off to find out this this, this thriller thing has been sprung Mm. on them. And the people who would enjoy the thriller probably wouldn't run to go see Mm. a romantic comedy. I would love that. I would also love that. But as as a film critic, if... if Again, if the marketing sold that as a romantic comedy and you were hoodwinked, I could only vaguely allude to the fact that it was a thriller at all yeah. in a review. Yeah. 
I, I feel like what the studio has deemed permissible is dictated by their advertising. I think that's and the general yeah. guideline we should all be following. Now, when it comes to stuff like uh, if, if there's something like some sort of vital information that a lot of people would prefer to be spoiled or prefer, excuse me, would prefer not to be spoiled, but you're either so enthused about it or it's so daring or it's so ridiculous mm-hmm. that it becomes sort of a selling point. I feel like it's okay to start to reveal those things. You need to announce it. Mm. You need to say we're going to be talking about spoilers and you need to explain why. Yeah. We're not just talking about – we're not spoiling the ending, the twist ending of this movie just to <laughs> just because we can. Yeah. We're doing it because if you know this information, you'll want to see the movie more – because if we just hid it from you the way the movie would like us to, you would never see the film. Hmm. Case in point, the Matthew McConaughey film Serenity. Not to be confused with the Joss Whedon sci-fi film. Uh, if you don't know that there's... All I'm going to say, I'm not going to ruin it for you. Just trust us on this. There's a twist in the movie Serenity that is so fucking weird, <laughs> I actually recommend you see it. Hmm. But if I didn't... If I reviewed the film without ever talking about how there's a twist... All I could talk about is how there's this really shitty, badly written, like, film oh, yeah. noir, sweaty fisherman story with Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway. And, yeah, until you find out what the movie's really about, that's all it is. It sucks. There's no reason to recommend you see it. But if you know that there's a twist that makes all of that, if not good, at the very least, very interesting. Hmm then it's kind of our responsibility to talk about that. But only after we've warned people, if you really don't want to know anything, don't read any further. Mm -hmm. If you're already seeing the movie, don't read this bit until after you've seen it. Mm -hmm. The tricky thing, though, is that there are a lot of movies out there, the big movies mostly, superhero movies, Mm -hmm. franchise films, in which people think that mm, knowing literally gosh, yeah. anything about the movie is a spoiler. Well, knowing knowing anything that hasn't been deemed knowable by the marketing department. And this mm. is where we get into tricky territory. Yeah. Because when you know, the marketing departments are have become experts at getting people to anticipate something really, really big. Mm-hmm. And uh, they release uh, previews on a very set schedule. They kind of drip out information to mm-hmm. the, the public in a very specific way. They're, they're to, tricking um, you into doing their job for them. Yeah, you will like, continue the conversation. The entertainment then, yeah, websites then, will re- do articles about who could the mystery villain be? Yeah, or, and then, oh, and here's a trailer. Oh, look, and here's, let's you know, write 50 articles about what's in the trailer. The shot for shot! What's yeah, in it? Like, a, here's a video of me watching the trailer. It's yeah. like... You're you're doing all of that advertising then, and then yeah, you should you'll be notice, paid for that. Yeah, seriously, and then seriously, like maybe less than a week before the release, when critics are first starting to see it, it's all of a sudden it all dries up immediately. There's not going to be an extra preview right there at the last minute. You yeah. know, there's not going to be new this information. This is all we know before the movie okay, comes out. You have all the information now. You're prepared. Everybody's like, okay, now I'm prepared. Critics, don't spoil anything. We're prepared now. It's like, well, this is just advertising. Yeah. I'm going to see the movie, and I'm going to tell you what the movie is outside of the advertising. Sometimes. So now now I actually have to balance what I've seen and then what I feel is appropriate from within the movie that I can reveal, even if the studio hasn't given that information in advertising. See, here's the thing. I think there are certain things that are just okay to talk about. For example... The first act of any movie. Mostly, generally speaking, yeah. the first 30 minutes... Again, there might be a huge twist that you need to deal with. Mm. But generally speaking, the first act is fair game. You know why? 
because it's introducing the characters and setting up the plot. Hmm. That's the majority of the work that a, a film review usually does, unless you're doing a deep dive into something that's been out for a while. But like a new film review, you usually talk about who's in it, hmm. give you the gist of their characters, set you up on their journey, and then talk. And then basically, you talk about progressively less as the movie goes on. You can reveal pretty much the whole first act. Second act, you talk about highlights, things that don't work, um, allude to things that might get into spoiler material, but you do need to discuss them a little mm. bit. And then as the third act, the end of the movie rolls along, generally speaking, unless it's so predictable that like you, the audience knows where it goes, like, yeah, there's going to be a climactic fight between the hero and the bad guy. Mm. That's not a spoiler. Right. Maybe saying where it is might be a spoiler. Or if it's so, a, an unknown villain. Or, but yeah, yeah but you're like allowed that, to yeah. say there's a climactic fight, mm. I think. That's not a spoiler. That's, but that's very general, mm. isn't it? So, like, you try not to go into too many specifics about the ending, unless you absolutely have to, in which case then you would announce a spoiler. So, um, yeah, so there are certain things, like, I remember when the reviews for The Force Awakens were coming out. And there were people who were legitimately mad when they found out that Ray was the protagonist of the film. That that's not a spoiler. That's not yeah. a spoiler. She's not the first person we meet, but Luke Skywalker isn't the first person we meet in Star Wars. Anakin Skywalker isn't mm. the first person we meet in Phantom Menace. And it's not that's like just it's, the way it's done, man. It's not some sort of twist either, where no. it's like some celebrity. It's not like an well, I can I can, I can like bring up Sa- I can bring up Psycho at this point, yeah. or yeah, or Scream, where like Drew Barrymore is the biggest name in the cast and she dies within ten minutes. Mm. That's a surprise. It's also pretty common knowledge by the time the movie came out, but it was still. A, a, a novelty to see. This is not a spoiler. This is just the basics of a film. Mm. You shouldn't... If you read a, mo- a movie review and you don't expect them to tell you anything that happens in the movie, you're not looking for a movie review. You're looking for a general reaction. Mm. You're looking for a tweet. That's okay. It's okay if that's all you want right now. But a movie review actually has to talk about what happens in the movie and whether or not it works. You can't talk about whether or not it works without backing that up. A a movie review is a subjective opinion with quantifiable observations to back it up. Mm. So it's bad because I saw these things. Yeah, yeah, these are things I liked. These are things I didn't like. Uh, Yeah. And and uh, why? Yeah. um, There was... um, Was it Peter... Not Peter Travers. Mm -hmm. Um... One critic got into big trouble, got into a lot of hot water when The Last Jedi came out because they openly discussed certain <sighs> details. It was only the um, trades, too, so everyone read yeah, it. it was, it was like Hollywood Reporter Variety. It was Variety. I think yeah. it was the critic for Variety. Yeah. Um, and they oh revealed. Gosh, I wish um, I could remember who it was, but they, yeah. Yeah, they revealed that there's a, a, a cameo from. Uh, I guess I can say it now. There's a cameo yeah, from oh, yeah. Yoda in that movie. Everybody's seen it at this point. Uh, but yeah, this was like right before the film came out. And that's the sort of thing that's like, it happens in one scene, it's a cameo. Mm. That's the sort of thing you want to leave a surprise for people who might be looking forward to it. However, the critic felt that this film was so disposable that it, this was not an important detail to the eye Well, of the, the critic, critic wasn't keeping tabs on, on, on the like, anticipation machine. Yeah, I and think, they didn't know that that, the, wasn't, yeah. that that was a spoiler. I, I think that the critic should have been a little bit more savvy, but I think the their editor should have noticed. Editor, that's what it yeah, boils down yeah. to. Their edi- the, the, there's the critic, no reason yeah. that shouldn't have been had an editor. Yeah, yeah the editor should have noticed that. Editors, newspapers were all gutted, so there aren't sort of like teams of editors the way there used to be, unfortunately. Mm. So yeah, that that kind of attention to detail kind of slips by a lot uh, in in even the trades. So I think there is a responsibility to understand where this sort of anticipation complex is coming from. Mm-hmm. I also think a critic is almost under an obligation to undo it as best they can. 
to separate the film as much as they can from whatever the advertising has said to but, let you let the audience know what the film is actually is outside of this gigantic machine and right. when it comes to spoilers mm-hmm. The people who I've discovered are the most concerned with spoilers are the people who are trying to find out the most for the longest yeah, the time. people have the most fan theories. They will yeah. listen to the most podcasts speculating about yeah, it. Yeah, they'll, they'll go on these um, podcasts. They'll discuss them openly. They'll write, read all of these articles. And Pretty they'll be damn really excited find, trying to scoop up as much information. Some people go, like, find the international trailers, which mm-hmm. have, like, three seconds of different footage. Maybe it was a different take. Who's to say? And And then... They're the ones who start screaming no spoilers. And I'm wondering if there are people out there who get really excited about gigantic blockbusters Mm -hmm. but deliberately put on blinders from day one where they don't even know know what the cast is. They don't know what the story is. If they they try to go in completely blind, and I don't think that's a thing. Two things. One, seeing a movie completely blind like you Mm -hmm. wouldn't say a film festival where you only know the title and then you go in, that can be a glorious experience where you get to really discover something for the first time even if it sucks you had no idea what you were getting Mm. that can be really great and that's hard to do now because it's hard to even see a movie without at least knowing it exists Mm. (laughs) like you know it's usually you find out about it because of marketing or word of mouth or something Mm. so that's just hard to do and that's always nice when you can pull that off Mm. um but when it comes to spoilers i believe that spoiler culture has evolved Spoilers used to mean very specifically, and they still do mean this, but Mm. they mean more now. Spoilers used to mean don't spoil a plot point from the movie that was supposed to be a surprise. Mm. Don't spoil it. Yeah, don't, don't. A plot point that is such a big deal Mm. that it negates any need to actually see the film. Now, I would actually argue there aren't a lot of those. I think most movies are still worth watching. Even if you know how they end, and I, I, I'm very—I don't believe in spoilers for myself. Yeah. Like you, you can tell me everything that happens in a movie; I'll still enjoy it. Yeah. In fact, uh, I'll probably enjoy it more knowing how it's going to end going in. Yeah, maybe. But I might be a little odd in that respect. Th- there are other people who believe yeah. that, but yeah, whatever. But in any case, that's one school of thought. But I firmly believe that spoilers have evolved. Now we haven't really talked about it too much. To mean don't spoil. My anticipation. anticipation. Don't spoil the sense of mystery and wonder I have built out. Don't spoil that it sucks. (laughs) Just don't don't, don't, ruin this perfect movie I have in my head because now the movie's coming out in a week and I only have one week to enjoy the movie I have in my head before I find out what it actually is. Mm -hmm. And if it's not exactly what I have in my head, I might not like it very much, even if it's still good. Mm -hmm. And that's a fucking problem in and of itself as well. This is one of the reasons why people ask me, what movies are you anticipating? Yeah, I usually say nothing. I'm, I'm trying I'm, not to. I, I I get excited about movies after I say I get excited. Yeah. You know, it's like Herzog and Moment Shots are teaming up. Oh, I want to see that. Like in general, yeah. I'm interested in seeing a new Coen Brothers movie mm-hmm. or something, just because they usually make good movies. But that's as far as that goes. Yeah, There's only like one movie that was supposed to come out this year mm-hmm. that I would even like begrudgingly admit. Okay, I'm kind of looking forward to this, mm-hmm. uh, and that's In the Heights. <laughs> okay. Just because it's John M. Chu doing the big musical he always mm. wanted to do. I've been a fan of most of his movies. Mm. I'm curious to see what he can do. I hope it's good. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. But generally speaking, I believe that anticipation creates in our head an image of what the movie is supposed to be. And that can blind us to what the movie actually is. And that sometimes takes it means it takes us longer to appreciate the movie we actually got. Mm. And it makes it makes us really quick 
to decry a film just for not being what we predicted it would be. Or it puts something in your head, and when the film matches it, that's enough, and it becomes cemented in your head as a classic, and it doesn't invite any kind of analysis as to what it is and is not doing well or badly. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, it's like, oh, that's exactly what I wanted. It's exact. I had it in my head, and it was exactly that way. It is perfect. Like, well, is it? it let's, well, if you were going is, in sort of surprise looking at it, yeah. kind of perfect as well? well? A little bit of a surprise of it. You didn't know a new kind of twist would have been interesting, right? Or no, it's just perfect. No, that's no, it. That's what they wanted. Not, not going not to think about that one. Anyway. Uh, so, yeah, that's a, a lot to answer all of your questions It's, it's there, a big but, yeah, topic it's, and something that mm. film critics think about and talk about all the time. And yeah, it's part yeah. of our job. It's part of our job to so, find the right balance. Um, and, yeah, I think we've both screwed up. Oh, absolutely. Here and there, at least, yeah, yeah. at least in the eyes of our readers, we try, and we've learned lessons yeah, read, from read, the times in which we've been called out. Read the comments re- under my, uh, my Man of Steel review at some uh, point. <laughs> it's uh, so horrific. But um, in any case, thank you for the great questions. Everybody, thank you for the great questions. It's been a wonderful episode of We've Got Mail. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't forget, you can email us letters at criticallyacclaimed.net if you want more Bibbs and Whitney uh, and the critically acclaimed network isn't enough head on over to patreon patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network we have a ton of exclusive content for people on every single tier Mm. um and um yeah we're on twitter at critic acclaim i'm at william viviani i'm at whitney seibold and i guess that's about it so thank you everybody for writing in sincerely yours bibs and whitney 